Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. I'm excited on this episode to have Adam Hansen, CEO, founder of Genial. Adam, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Thanks for having me. So, love you. Yeah. Um, so it's fun to meet at the Silicon Slopes event, and uh, you, you're doing some pretty interesting stuff. Can you explain what Genial does? Yeah. So at Genial, we're developing a private exchange for biomedical data. And our initial focus is with uh, patients with genetic diseases and rare diseases. Uh, basically, we're trying to make it as easy as possible for um, uh, all conditions, all diverse health conditions to have their fair shot at getting a, a treatment developed for their disorder condition that uh, actually works. So, Yeah. Um, and, and funding wise, did I see you guys got a big grant? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we recently were awarded a $2.3 million uh, fast track grant from the NIH, which uh, we're, we're very excited about. And uh, that was actually part of a, a, a new program that's a, a little bit of a mouthful, but it was a, a small business transition grant for early career, uh, early career scientists, I think. And uh, we were fortunate to be uh, part of the first cohort of uh, less than 10 awards that the NIH uh, gave out for that. So, um, By the way, so if somebody does want to go to the National Institute of Health to try to apply for something, was there like a specific place on the website, like free money here? How do they, where do they go? Yeah, they, they, they do post everything public, publicly. They have their different RFAs. And if anyone has any specific questions about kind of how to navigate or tips on that, they can reach out to me and I'd be happy to. I'm happy to at least share our experience on that. So uh, they, they do advertise everything. So, Yeah. Well, I mean, as soon as you started explaining it, um, I immediately thought of a friend, the, you know, the guy I introduced you to in San Diego, right? Nice. Um, who, you know, child with a rare disease, really struggling to find out what the best practices are and to connect with other families and try and find out that way. I mean, they're consistently having to educate their own doctors on what's going on. Yeah. And... Uh, it, it's hard to get research. It's hard to get so many things done. Um, and yet we have an internet. We have, you know, we aren't uh, we're posting things in the mail anymore. Um, and uh, there, there's so many opportunities for people to get more information than is historically available. Can you talk about kind of the innovative things that you guys are doing that haven't been done yet? Yeah, the kind of core foundation of our model um, we're, we're differentiating ourselves from both the business model and a technology standpoint. So, uh, you know, data aggregation really is kind of the, the, the name of the game, data being very siloed. And uh, there's a lot of what we consider to be data owners that are in this space. They're aggregating data. They basically take ownership of that data and then create, you know, with this new larger aggregate resource, they can turn it around and, and do something more valuable with strength in numbers, larger data set. So what we're doing is trying to align interests to make this network as wide as possible and uh, fair for all stakeholders. So uh, through technology, we do this through this kind of um, new umbrella technology called privacy-preserving computation. And this enables us to actually aggregate and analyze data uh, without us uh, at Genial being able to see the, the contents of the data. We're blind to the raw data, uh, perform a, a query or an analysis, you get a result. Uh, we still can't understand the contents of the result. So, you know, how do we do anything valuable with it? 
we actually have to go back to the data contributors, to the data owners, and uh, they review. They're the, they're the only ones that can initially see the results. They have to review that, sign off on that on a transaction by transaction basis. Could be manual, could be automated. And once they sign off on that, then we can basically exchange, you know, broker the transaction between the, the buyer and the seller, essentially, or the, the renter and the, the group interested in borrowing the data. And, and that transaction, again, can still happen in a way where we're blind to the contents of data. So why does that matter? Uh, you know, if we can't see the contents of the data, then it's, it's much easier to trust us because we're not going to misuse the data. We're not going to compete to have ulterior motives. So part A of what makes us unique is this privacy-preserving compute. Uh, now I mentioned business model as well as a, an area that we're focused on for differentiation. And uh, kind of the landscape with data right now, I, I kind of mentioned briefly, you have uh, producers of biomedical data. It could be patients themselves. It could be healthcare systems, diagnostic labs. And then you have consumers of data you know, biopharma companies, sometimes healthcare systems and diagnostic labs in different roles, different subgroups, they could also consume data. Well, in order to maintain that neutrality and be like a trusted third party or kind of a Switzerland of biomedical data, we're making an intentional decision where we are not a data producer. We're also not a data consumer. We're not going to pursue these activities whatsoever. So instead, what's left for us to pursue is that uh, brokerage, transaction fees, kind of as the long-term model. And short-term, we're, uh, uh, today, was our products that are live are tools to help data producers uh, better manage their data and better interface with pac patient communities, uh, especially in the, the rare disease space. We have this universal rare disease registry platform that we've just launched that we're excited about. So kind of to, to summarize that, and short-term, we are a SaaS model selling tools to data producers. And long-term, there's this brokerage model that leverages the privacy-preserving compute as well to help us be this, this trusted third-party network with a, a really large potential to scale. So when people think about a business model like this, um, can you help the rest of us understand the complexities of trying to get this done? Because I can see how people who are trying to serve those clients really need access to this hard to reach data. What are the kind of hurdles you have to jump through to run a business like this? Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. You know, we need to dis design and, and produce this, like a coherent platform product strategy that simultaneously meets the needs of multiple different stakeholders. So, so that's a lot at a high level to, to handle and, and we've thought uh, a long time about how we can approach this. And one, one kind of insight I can share is uh, in our journey with Genial, when we first started, we were really focused on the privacy-preserving compute technology and the, and the brokerage business model, thinking, hey, we can kind of be this, this layer, this private layer uh, that we can uh, sell and come in and, and help facilitate transactions between producers and consumers of data. And as we really began to dig in, what we saw was a big lack of standardization of data in the industry and just a need for you know, better tools to, to manage patient relationships. So 
that kind of became a, um, that obstacle became a blessing in disguise because we saw that need and realized actually this is where we can kind of take a incremental, more modular approach to our product strategy before jumping straight to the brokerage model. Let's first, uh, it's a bit like a chicken and an egg problem first, you know, which side do you focus on initially of this two-sided marketplace? We realized we can just focus on just the data producers initially, and there's kind of an isolated value uh, there uh, that we can build a tool set around that once that is mature and established and the footprint increases, um, that really will pave the way to open up um, solving problems for data producers. So I guess we're just uh, having a strategy that really just focuses on the needs of one group at a time, but keeping in mind, um, you know, like uh, begin with the end in mind, right? We're, we're remembering where we're headed in terms of uh, all these other stakeholders as well. Um, what, what was your degree in? Uh, so my undergraduate degree uh, was in bioinformatics uh, from BYU. And so for, for those who might not be familiar with that, basically the, the intersection of, of biology or genetics, uh, computer science, and statistics. Really interesting program. I was just a couple credits shy of a, a double major in Chinese as well. Uh, I spent a long time at undergrad, had really diverse interests, and I spent some time in the business school as well. was an entrepreneurship major for a while, but um, ended up graduating with a technical degree. Uh, then uh, for graduate school, I came to Houston, Texas, Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, computational genetics is what my PhD is in. Yeah. And so the data-preserving... I can't remember what the title for that is. The, the privacy producing, privacy protecting. What's the name of that thing? Privacy preserving compute. That. Yeah. Did you invent that? Did you license that? Where does that come from? Yeah. So, so we are not inventors of this. It's been a, a movement in compute, uh, computer science that's, um, it consists of a couple other uh, kind of sub technologies and, just to point to a specific example, you can talk about homomorphic encryption, one of these examples. It's another mouthful, but uh, this idea was first proposed way back in the 70s. There's a computer scientist who said, hey, mathematically, it should be possible where we can take encrypted data and we can actually encrypt it in a way where we can do compute on that and then have a still encrypted result that we can eventually decrypt and you know, uh, do that compute without having to first decrypt the data, which is really how, how data typically works. Uh, it wasn't until 2009, a few decades later, where there's a, a smart uh, Stanford PhD, Craig Gentry, his thesis was the first viable algorithm for this homomorphic encryption. It worked. It was amazing. Even the, you know, conservative academic computer scientists called this the holy grail of uh, of cryptography and um, it had a huge achilles heel and it still does which is it's uh it's very computationally expensive the data handled in this manner takes a lot more space takes a long time to do the analysis and so fast forward to 2023 like 13 14 years later and now we're finally at an inflection point where this technology is beginning to become commercially viable uh, you see a lot of the big tech companies, Microsoft, IBM, others have these open source libraries that are very low level, nowhere near off the shelf ready to use. And But there's enough of a community where 
company like us and where our um, IP comes into place is uh, leveraging this as one tool in the context of a multi-party exchange for biomedical data, a multi-party marketplace. And the other element that we bring to it as well, and my co-founder is actually my brother, which is a fantastic to be able to work together. And his background is in um, computer engineering uh, and he has an MBA as well. And he's done a lot of uh, work with uh, GPUs and uh, hardware. And so we actually, part of our grant funding when we get to the later stages of the grant over the next two years is going to be bringing in GPU acceleration, some of these new algorithms uh, to, to make it actually feasible to use in this biomedical data marketplace scenario. So yeah, that's where we're at and that's kind of our role, our role in, in the niche. So my next question, right, right now, your customers are much more on the data producer side. That's right. You're saying? Yeah. Um, so for people who don't have a PhD like you, uh, talk about the sales process. How do you, how do you hook these customers? What, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, we're, we're at the stage still too where, you know, we're constantly, we're constantly learning and there's a lot of different types of data producers that we could work with. Um, but the model that uh, we found so far is, um, and I guess maybe I should take a step back first to talk about the um, some of the numbers and statistics of rare diseases. When you, when you hear rare, we think, "Wow, it's, it must be really hard to find them. Must maybe this is a small small market." Uh, but it's actually estimated that seven to eight percent of the world is affected with a rare condition. Okay, now. Uh, eight out of 10 of these rare conditions are genetic uh, in nature as well. So that's like maybe 5% of the world has a genetic disorder. A lot of these aren't diagnosed yet either. And it's really just been in the last 10 years now that um, genome sequencing and exome sequencing has become a, a diagnostic tool that we can use. So this has led to this explosion in data and now there's this explosion in discovery of new genetic disorders and also in our ability to make these really precise, really accurate diagnoses. So, so with that context in mind, what we're seeing right now is... Well, can I pause you there for a second first? Just yeah, before yes. we move on. So if anybody's listening and their family has concerns like this, like in my family, we've got some rare diseases and it is definitely multi-generational. What advice do you have for people who are like, their doctor may not be up to date on just how much new information is. Their doctor might not even know what genome sequencing is. Um, what, what advice would you have for a family like mine who's wanting to find out, hey, is there, better, is there better options that my family care practitioner doesn't know about? Yeah, um, so this is exactly what we're working towards at Genial, um, to be able to, to help communities come together and to have answers. And I think the first thing I'd share is just to... Um, you know, sympathy with, uh, with with what everyone is going through. Our journeys are all, all unique, and and you know, medicine is a long process. Um, historically, to get a new drug approved, the numbers are you looking at ten years and a billion dollars uh, or more. Um, but with that in mind, in the future, you know, we're working on ways to accelerate this process to be able to add value. So today, uh, what you know, the first thing that you need is um, really to try to find an accurate diagnosis, a molecular diagnosis in 
is what we call this as a geneticist. And uh, if you haven't had, uh, if, if all your tests are coming back negative and you haven't gotten to what's called exome sequencing yet or genome sequencing, one or the other of those tests, you should really push your doctors and to try to get that ordered uh, and, and see if they can work with insurance to get it paid for. And there are some labs that offer substantial discounts and kind of a direct to consumers uh, or more of a self-pay for this exome sequencing. What, what kind of pricing? Like um, ball, ballpark, like uh, may, maybe three thousand to three thousand dollars for the, okay. the self, but not like twenty thousand. That's what the insurance might bill um, if it's yeah if if it's through the the traditional route. Okay, um, once you have a diagnosis, then you can. The next step is to find your community and begin to participate in that community, build the community. Um, most are these like online forums, or what do you recommend? Yeah, you know, where most of these live right now is Facebook groups. Um, there's, there's a Facebook group for most, uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can say most, I don't know the exact numbers, but most rare diseases that I've seen have this kind of organic Facebook group that eventually uh, organizes themselves from the, the patient community. And, you know, that's pragmatically like today, that's the most helpful resource, uh, being able to connect with others in the community. And uh, where we're coming in, Genial, what we uh, are working towards in the next six months to a year to be able to be able to to launch for these communities is uh, a platform where they can opt in in a privacy-preserving way to exchange data with each other. Um, like one common thread that that we've seen is we'll have parents talking to each other on Facebook Messenger from within these groups. They're actually uploading you know, PDF files, the entire medical histories of their children or of themselves. Um, you know, they're not medical experts either, but they're having to become immersed in this world because of necessity. And, you know, they're just trying to find some kind of commonality, some kind of intersection, combing through each other's medical records. You know, you can imagine it's not an efficient process, not a secure process, given what we've seen about how Facebook uh, historically has handled data either. So, um, you know, we can automate that where we're headed to be able to, to, to have community where you can um, connect with each other, opt in, opt out, uh, compare uh, histories, notes with each other and begin to have those conversations. And also education and connection with uh, researchers, be able to receive and kind of consume different content about who's the latest about this condition or that. And so. Can we talk about that? That's something that I, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a learning nerd. You know, I, I really consume a lot of audiobooks. I've done 800 episodes of this show. I, you know, I'm constantly That's talking. Great. Like, I love going to conferences. I'm always meeting people. New, well, look where we met, right? Yeah. And um, I, uh, I think there's enough. A lot of people that don't realize how accessible. A lot of the world's smartest people are like, unless they're really, really, really rich, they actually answer emails. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like there's so many people that like, if you do with what they're obsessed about, there's so many folks that would talk to us, you know? And like, again, our own family dealing with different, um, different autoimmune diseases and things. We've like kind of been frustrated with answers from doctors and they're like, oh, wait, why don't we just Google who's the world's top expert? on this sure. yeah and you start getting these lists and like 
just that person's website without even talking to them ends up like some researcher, maybe they wrote a book or whatever, ends up like having so much information that's better than the weeks of the appointments we went to, let alone actually reaching out to them, you know? Yeah, it's, it's amazing and ironic too. But yeah, it's, it's great that we can find answers through some way. So yeah. So. Um, okay, sorry for the tangent. Let's go back to, um, tell us about this, this client of yours, the data producers and, uh, and how the business works there. Yeah, so um, rare disease uh, communities, as they form, you know, maybe they start with a Facebook group. The next step uh, that basically every group converges around, is, you know, what we need to do is build out what's called a, a registry, a patient registry. And these can look differently and, you know, have different um, degrees of how much data they include. But at a high level, it's a you know, basic contact information of um and the, the diagnosis information and then some different um, what as researchers would call phenotypes about the different the different participants. So, you know, what's their medical history and it can be a combination of uh, medical record notes as well as uh, a lot of these. Um, you know, the, the medical system for rare diseases doesn't do a good job of being thorough about capturing, you know, all, all the details of, of what's going on. So what's even more valuable than the medical records is, is often just um, uh, really surveys, what we call patient-reported outcomes data. So it's this game of um, these communities are all trying to be scrappy and trying to figure out, okay, we need to put together a registry. How do we do this? And you know, what, what questions would we ask in our registry survey? What's the platform you know, going to be like? What technology? How do we make sure this data is actually what's going to be important to researchers and to pharma eventually then there's questions of you know data rights and consent and there's a lot of moving pieces but um, our first customers are uh, any group that's somewhere along this journey of either beginning to start up a registry or a group that already has a registry but is looking for a more sophisticated platform to manage the data to better map it to standards and better prepare for interoperability in this larger network is in the world of rare you know it's it's all about strength in numbers that's the only way you can succeed is by trying to get those numbers as, as high as possible in terms of um, your number of participants and so uh you said it's a software as a service model where they're you're just signing up for an annual program like an, an annual contract to use your program to handle that for them yeah uh, well you know, technically, the, what they've preferred is um, a perpetual license uh, for the current version of the platform just so they can have that comfort of we're not going to be locked into your platform. We're not gonna, it's not going to be a setback. The last thing we want to do is hold, uh, hold people and their data hostage. That's totally against our ethos and, and what we're about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, that perpetual license and guarantee of something functional um, for year one. And then in year two, it converts to the SaaS model um, for the uh, new uh, updates and ongoing support. So that's interesting. So the SaaS model isn't for access to your program. It's for access to the improvements on the program they have a perpetual license for. That's right. Yeah. And, and there's yeah, interesting. Yeah. You know, it, it's a way to. Um, I want my Tesla updates for my car. <laughs> exactly. It's just a way to alleviate some of the concerns about, oh, you know, I don't want to be. Don't want to be locked into a certain platform in the long run, and, and 
you know, that's not what we're about. At the end of the day, we want to accelerate the pathway to, to getting treatments for all these conditions. So, yeah. So, um, and what, what kind of price range? What does that, what does that cost? Yeah. Uh, so far, um, with the, the current model, we're looking at about $50,000 um, for the, the first entry point of setup. And, and that's been split about half and half between the actual license versus the services component, which could vary based on the, the state of the data, if there is existing data when, when we first work with them. And then what's your recurring? Oh, uh, similar. So we're looking at 3000 a month for the subscription in year two and yeah. beyond. Um, so I'm always fascinated with the systematic acquisition of new, profitable, reliable customers, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of the industry. Um, what's, a, what's a lesson you've learned? What's, what's a principle you'd share with other founders as you tried to figure that out? Yeah, systematic acquisition of customers. And well, I mean, there's always the advice of make sure that you're you're building something that actually addresses a need, right? Um I think what I can might be helpful to talk a bit about kind of my backstory behind Genial, right? This idea is not something that we kind of created on a whim and launched in a short period of time after a kind of a quick investigation into the space. Um over 10 years ago, when I was in undergrad, I made a deliberate decision to, um, I knew I was interested in entrepreneurship already at that point, um, but I was trying to figure out, you know, what space I wanted to work in. And I grew up in a home where um, my father was an a inventor, um, very prolific engineer, inventor, generate patents. Um, in, in what sector? Uh, computer hardware engineering um, so mm -hmm. things related to um, processing video and image, images and also related to uh, differential signaling if uh, anyone's familiar with that and and I had exposure to you know the IP around entrepreneurship and uh, how you could license that for revenue and pros and cons of that but um I really became obsessed with the idea of what does it actually take to take an innovation all the way from uh, ideation through to um, completion to, you know, actually having and being deployed in the market, actually impacting people, fulfilling its purpose. Okay. So, so 10 years ago, like I want to innovate, but what, what space? And I realized at my core, and it's, it sounds cliche, but I, what motivates me the most is, is other people and I'm a people person and I heard, uh, uh, I had a mentor that I, I looked up to and, um, was explaining what motivated him in Alzheimer's disease research. And, uh, for him, it was all about relieving human suffering. That really stuck with me. Like, okay, my life and career is going to be about relieving human suffering through precision medicine, through genetic medicine. That path led me to and I, I realized through a series of events that if I wanted to really be successful in that, I needed to go deep in understanding the problem. I started, uh, applied for, finished a PhD program, all with this intent of trying to get a deep understanding of the problems in the space. Where are the bottlenecks and how can we address them? So that might be a bit extreme of, you know, kind of a 10-year path of, of problem exploration, but 
I think that's the advice that I would have is um, twofold there. You know, it's being intentional with a mission and long-term goals. Really be intentional and focus on that. That will lead you in the right direction. And yeah. Just, just uh, kind of following that up with, with being consistent over time. Yeah. So based on all of that background, mm-hmm. what like what's like the marketing and sales program that worked for you? So we're still building out our commercial team right now at Genial. So we're in the, the relatively early days of commercialization. Um, but so far, we've, um, we, we like the philosophies of, of product-led growth. And uh, all of our interest so far has been organic, kind of word-of-mouth advertisement. It started with our existing network, you know, collaborators, people that I had those relationships with already during my PhD. They were the ones that were most willing to work with us in the earliest stages, you know, take a, take a risk and work with the early company. And as we began to make some progress and uh, show some results, uh, you know, it became easier and easier to network. And, and then we pretty quickly got to the point where we were, we're now seeing some virality with uh, when we get introductions, you know, people hear our message. Oh, there's three, three more people I want you to talk to. And, and that's, that's been able to sustain us for now in, in early stages of sales and marketing. Is that going to be the right strategy for, you know, one to two years down the road? I'm sure we'll need to um, eventually transition to more of a push in addition to the, the pull that we're feeling right now. Um, but that's where we're at today. So, Well, you know, one of the things that does speak to, I've been lucky enough to have maybe 25 or 30 folks on the show who are the CEO founder that grew the company from zero over a billion. And um, one of the things I'm always asking them is how they define product market fit. Mm-hmm. And they never give me a definition. They always give me an example or they give me an anecdote or something. But it's like, it is saying like, you know, we had Steve Blank on the show who, you know, father of the lean startup, wrote Four Steps of the Epiphany, Startup Owner's Manual, you know, taught at Stanford for 20 years. And, you know, I was asking him, like his eighth startup, he sold for 8 billion, right? And he's like, when he talks about it, he's like, have you built something that customers can't get enough of? You know, like, love that. You know, like, um, one of the guys talked about this idea of like return on sales investment. He says, when we go talk to somebody, how much return do we get from that? Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. he's like, when the product's really awesome, one conversation leads to more than one customer. You know, right. like, that, that's, that's what he thinks, that's what he calls viral. his, that's his viral coefficient, right? Interesting. Turn um, on sales investment. Yep. You know, uh, a different guy said um, he he raised like thirty million dollars, built this business. Google was an investor; it's supposed to be great. Completely crashed it. His next business, he's like, "Oh, it's just going to be a hobby." He puts ten grand in, and uh, it's like mail order for like really high quality meat, grass fed beef, and stuff like that. Okay. Actually, originally because of his wife's medical condition, and uh, completely. Completely bootstrapped, uh, butcher box will do. Did almost six hundred like million dollars last year, right? Okay, yeah, it's amazing. And he's like, "Well, just the way I'd answer it is, some of my businesses feel like I'm pushing a boulder up a hill, and some of my businesses feel like I'm pushing a boulder down a hill." <laughs> Love it, <laughs> you know. And so I think just the response you're getting is great, and, and just even the mindset of being product led, right? Product led growth, yeah, uh, is probably helpful for that, and. 
so that at the point you are, you know, putting those sales and marketing dollars and systems in, hopefully you're getting a high return on sales investment. Thanks. Yeah, we're super excited about the the growth and traction that we've seen so far and we're going to keep running with it. So I love it. Well, listen, if people want to find out more, what's the website? Where should they be going? What should they do next? Yeah, uh, genial.com. That's G-E-N-E-I-A-L.com. That's great. Well, thanks again for making time for this. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Appreciate you. You bet. Bye, everyone.